You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. So this morning, what I, I want to dive into uh, is going to be amazing. And so let me first give us a little bit of background of where we were last week. We started jumping into Stephen's story, his portion of the narrative of the book of Acts in chapter 6. And he was accused of, of saying things that were false about Moses, about the temple, about the, the person, the nature of Jesus and his resurrection. He was accused of saying, hey, these things aren't true. You're speaking that of the temple being broken down and torn down. And you're, you're speaking against the law and the covenant of Moses. He was accused by the priests. And he was accused because they saw so many priests coming to know the name of Jesus and coming to understand the power of the resurrection in their lives where they would formerly have denied the resurrection. They were transformed to believe in the resurrection and found new life themselves. The leaders, the religious leaders, the pastors of that that temple were getting upset about this and so they accused him on these things. And Stephen stood there, remembered that his task was to what? Look after the widows, the feed people. He was given the task with seven, six others to serve the people, to make sure that they received what they need. His job was not to preach. But yet here he is in the last part of chapter six because he understood not only his task, but he understood his what? Mission. His mission. And he didn't separate the two things that they, like, I have this task and this mission someone else will do, but those two things are joined together for purpose. That we don't just come and hold babies, that we breathe and speak out the mission of the gospel to our children. That we don't just come and paint a wall, but we, we paint the wall believing that we're creating the space for people to hear the gospel. And when people ask us, we speak the words and the truth of God into their lives. And that's the joy of what we get to do as believers. It's pretty awesome. Stephen modeled that so well for us in those last few verses of chapter six. But it's also the story, this story here and what we're gonna jump into in chapter seven today and next week is about the beginning of the persecution of the church. And so even the things that we're praying for this morning, this is where it all began. When the church began to get persecuted because of what they believed in, of who they spoke about, of simply the transforming work of Jesus in their lives, they didn't even have to say anything, but because of, of what was being changed in them, they began to become persecuted by others who just didn't understand or who looked at it and said, well, I don't think that part is true. And so I'm just going to take the first five books of this book and I'll say, I'll hold on to those, but the rest of it, forget about it. I like Genesis, but I don't like Revelation. I'm totally good with Malachi, but those first four books of the New Testament, mm, not so much. I like that Jesus did some good things and he helped people. I don't like what he did and what he said about the cross and his resurrection. They'll just pick and choose what they want. And so Stephen kind of dives into this moment and he's being accused. And so we jump into chapter seven, starting in verse one today. Now here's the thing. I'm gonna get a chair. 
I'm off screen, people, sorry. Because I have wrestled through this all week long on how to do this well. And in a way to give you the word of God this morning, and I just have not figured out a better way than to actually read it. Now you think, Jason, that's really weird. You should read the Bible. You're the pastor and you're preaching. Here's why. It's 53 verses. Okay, so I'm going to read through all 53 verses because there's no better way to do this than what, P, what Stephen brings to the people. Are we ready for that? So open up your Bibles, open up your phones. If you don't have either of those, that's okay because we've got these screens and uh, Dave and I are going to work really hard to stay on track with one another. Okay. Pop a ball back here. Uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 53. I feel so much lower now. When I sit down, I realize how short I am. Um, actually, when I stand up, I realize how short I am. Okay, let's, let's read. And the high priest said, starting verse one, are these things so? So the high priest, Stephen is brought in front of the council. He's being accused of the things we talked about last week. And the high priest's very first question is what you're being accused of true? And Stephen didn't say, hey guys, I have a task. That's all I'm here to do. Nope. He responded right away, verse two, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect that his offering would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs are also the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. Verse nine, we're almost there. And the patriarchs jealous of, jo <laughs> why are you laughing? And the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. But God, I love that statement. You see it through scripture all the time. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. Food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he, oh man, I got lost. He set out to our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. 
But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dwelt shrewdly in our, with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. When he's exposed, that's when she put him in the basket and put him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as his own son. And Moses, verse 22, was instructed in all the wisdom and the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And his retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30, almost there. Now when 40 years had passed, the angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to, to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now come I will send you to Egypt this Moses whom you rejected saying who made you a ruler and a judge this man God sent as both a ruler redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years this is the Moses who said to the Israelites God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers speaking of Jesus this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received uh, living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they became made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You took up a tent of Malak and starve your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship it, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they possessed, dispossessed the nations that drove God, drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and my earth, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you bring for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, for whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Amen? So things that were amazing to me about this is that I had to read it. Stephen knew it. He took this word and he had it as a part of his life. And, and Stephen was defending a few things, if we remember from last week. First, he was defending that he was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. So the Hebrew Jews were looking at him and saying, I'm not really sure you're really a full Jew. Because you don't really come fully embraced by the culture. You're not really part of that line that it kind of, this line got divided somewhere along the line. So I'm not sure you're really a Jew. You're really an Israelite because he spoke a different language or something just a little bit different about him. So he had to prove to these, these people, his accusers, that he was an Israelite, a child of God, that he had an understanding of history the understanding of the story of God's people through the ages. But he also had to defend himself with the truth of what he was saying, that Jesus had come to do a new thing, to provide a new covenant, to, to give a new path, to give them reconciliation through this spotless lamb that would take on this new covenant, be the new sacrifice. Because in the earlier days, they had to bring animals to sacrifice and give it to a priest that would go into the holiest of holies and offer up their sins so that they could be forgiven for the people. Jesus was that high priest. Jesus was the spotless lamb. So Stephen had now to defend and give them a greater understanding of the current work of God in the world and for the Israelites and for the Gentiles. He had a lot at stake for him. And he offers up his defense and he gives out a few things that, that we see. Number one defense was that he knew well the God's story and plan. He shows right then and there that he walked through this whole story from the very beginning of the covenant until now. He offered detail after detail after detail, understanding, look and hear what I have to say. I'm not just some kid who has no idea, who just but whatever out of the mouth, I get the story of God. I'm a committed Jew, just like you. I understand the glory of God and on his story and I come to worship him. I know the prophets before me. And he unfolds this. And he's showing that he was a true and faithful Jew, that he wasn't speaking against Moses, he was speaking of Moses. He wasn't speaking against the temple, he was speaking about the temple. He was giving them an understanding of the new and dawning day through the power and the resurrection of Jesus. Defense number one, I can stand firm in who I am and what I know. And it's not just made up stuff. I'm not just spouting off things that sound good. I'm giving you the truth of the story of God. 
Defense number two, that he wasn't speaking against Moses, but again, he was speaking about Moses, that, that Moses spe- spoke of raising up a new prophet, speaking of Jesus. That Moses' truth was leading us to an understanding, that Moses' law was leading us to an understanding that we were sinful, that we were broken, and that we needed something to reconcile us back to the glory of God. And that person is Jesus, that Moses spoke of a coming new covenant. And that is what Stephen was speaking of. Defense number two, defense number three, that at every stage of history, every stage of history from Abraham and Jacob and Moses to Joshua and beyond, through David and Solomon, that the the fathers resisted God's plan. They tried to thwart it. They tried to stomp it out. They tried to hold their own power instead of releasing it over to the powerful God in whom they said that they served. And they recognized, he defended us, this is what is still happening in our day. That history is continuing to repeat itself and to repeat itself and to repeat itself. Stephen brought out these three defenses and says, hey, high council, This is what the story of God is. I'm not just some random guy that's just out here spouting off details and thoughts and things. I'm speaking the story of God. I'm not speaking against Moses or the temple. I'm speaking the power that God gave through Moses and the truth that he gave through Moses and the power of the temple. And pause for a second. When he was accused of Jesus bringing down the temple and tearing it down, you go to Matthew, what is it, I think, ever here? Matthew 26, and guess who said that first? Jesus. Stephen's just repeating the, the words of his Savior and the coming King. That he came and he died and he rose again and he promised to go and prepare a place and come back for us. He's speaking of what is to come. This whole message isn't about a defense. He's revealing the glory of God in the story of God. And it's so awesome that he's able to do that. And he takes all of this, this, this sermon and just brings it out saying, I need you all to understand something. I'm not just standing in defense of me because I'm fearful of my life. And we've already seen that in Stephen in the last part of last week where his face shone like an angel. This guy is not afraid. He is unashamed. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life is so powerful that it shows in his physical appearance. He's not just speaking of his own defense. He's wanting people to understand the gospel and the coming work of Jesus. But not just that, but the work of Jesus that they have just seen. He wants them to understand that this this work that started at the very, very beginning is something that was for them, not against them. He wanted them to understand that, that we aren't here to persecute one another, even though that's been our journey along the way but that we should celebrate the work of God in one another because that is a journey that we have ahead. His sermon isn't about all that just happened. It's about all that is going to happen through the power and the glory of God. Sometimes we look at Stephen's story and think, this is so depressing because spoiler alert, next week he gets stoned. And that's all I'll say. 
And I believe that even reading through this and studying through this, that Stephen knew it was coming, but yet he stood in confidence like in the face of an angel and said, I'm not concerned for my well-being. My hope, my task, and my mission is for the glory of God and his gospel truth. And he lays it out. Adam Clark, commentator, um, very, very well-known commentator for pastors and preachers and theologians. He takes all of these 53 verses and he um, sums it up in this small paragraph. And you're all gonna look at me and say, why didn't you just read that? Well, I could have, but then you would have missed the beautiful reading of God's word. But let me read this. He says this, as Stephen was now vindicating himself from the false charges brought against him, he shows that he had uttered no blasphemy either against God, Moses, or the temple, but states that his accusers and the Jews in general were guilty of the faults with which they charged him, that they had from the beginning rejected and despised Moses and had always violated his laws. He proceeds to state that there is no blasphemy in saying that the temple shall be destroyed, that they have been without a temple till the days of David, nor does God ever confine himself to temple built by hands, seeing he filled both heaven and earth, that Jesus is the prophet of whom Moses spoke and whom they had persecuted, condemned, and at the last put to death, that they were wicked and uncircumcised in their heart and ears and always resisted the Holy Spirit as their fathers did. This is the substance of Stephen's defense as far as he was permitted to make it, a defense which they could not confute, confute, containing charges which they most glaringly illustrated and confirmed by adding the murder of this faithful disciple of, to that of all his glorious master. Stephen broke their accusations down but I really believe this and, and, and part of what Adam Clark said that he truly said, I want you to know these things. I want your uncircumcised hearts and ears. That means you have something in the way that is shrouding you from understanding the power of God. I speak the truth because the truth can pierce the darkness. The truth can circumcise your hearts and ears so you can understand the work and the power of God in your lives. That was what Stephen's desire was. He wasn't concerned about his own fate. He was concerned about theirs. And I love that about Stephen. And I think that's even where we see his task and mission, to care and to serve others. We see that happening in this part of this story in Stephen's journey. That even though he was a confident and a committed and a faithful Jew, he understood the story of God. His heart was still about them understanding the story of God, not only what has been, but what will be. He wanted to take them on a mission that joined him in the work of the gospel, not separated them. He wanted to see the church grow Stephen very clearly, even in the very last statement, that he's not speaking against the history of God's story, but he's understanding it. He wants his listeners to understand the journey of the story of God, because when they do, they will understand the power of God and what they, he has for us. And church, I think we're at that same place. Because many of us, if you've grown up in the church at all, 
if you've just gone to some children's ministry or kids' ministry, and if you've been in something like an Awana or anything of that nature, this sermon probably wasn't unfamiliar to you. You know the story of Abraham and the covenant that God had. You know the story of the burning bush and, and Joseph being sold into slavery and, and coming back and feeding his brothers and having that powerful family moment. You know the story of Moses and the leading the Israelites and, the, and, and across the, the sea and the splitting of the water. You've seen it. You've sung songs about it. Being, us being able to tell this story is probably pretty common. But here's what I always wonder. We can speak the story of God, but do we understand it and what it really means for us? Do we understand that it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that holds these really amazing stories of Jesus, but from Genesis to Revelation, we see the full story of God unfold. The beauty of us having this book was back in Stephen's day, this didn't exist. He couldn't sit down in a chair and read 53 verses of like, look at this. He stood amidst the, the persecution of that. And he understood the word, not only what it was and what the history was, but what it meant for him to the point that it gave him confidence. Across the world, persecution looks in different ways. And, and I really honestly believe that that persecution isn't something you can compare one place or one person to the other. I was uh, in, in the Philippines one time, met a young man um, who I just have a deep value for, but he shared his story in comparison to mine, understanding, having been to the States, understanding how I lived in a white, wealthy suburb. He lived with his family of 12, I believe, in an eight by eight square metal building, two floors that I had to duck into to get into. I'm five foot six. The lower floor was where they eat and they make food, made food. And the upper floor was where all 12 of them slept eight by eight. And he says this to me, Jason, it's not worse. It's just different. And I think that about persecution is not one thing, it's there's different levels of persecution. We need to be praying as we have this morning for the persecuted church around the world. Pastor Keith has, has let us understand the Voice of the Martyr Ministries. If you don't know what that is, I wanna encourage you, just Google Voice of the Martyrs. They give you ways to pray for every country in the, around the globe, how to pray for the persecuted church. Man, but I believe here in this country, even though, like I said last week, it can be dullified. <laughs> we can, it can be dampened in how we are persecuted in America, but there's still persecution in the church. When we stand out for the gospel and what we believe in our day, it gets pressed to the side. It gets compared and said, no, you're just trying to persecute us. And persecution comes in that way for you students in the room. You're about to step back into school it's one of the hardest platforms to be able to share the word of God and the power of the truth of the gospel and give understanding of what Jesus wants for them. Because we're not saying that what you are is wrong, but we say are saying that you're valued so much that Jesus came and he died for you and he wants to have a relationship with you. For those of you that are in a professional place that, that you don't feel like you can speak of that, 
because of HR rules or guidelines, there's this, this shrouding that has happened in America that we are not seemingly allowed to in many ways share the truth of the gospel, but we find ways not to say that I want to speak against who you are, but I want to speak for you because God is for you. Just like Stephen is doing here, he's not trying just to only defend himself but he wants them to understand the power of the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Church, we get to bring that story to life too. Even when we're told, no, you can't say those things. You can't believe those things because it's disempowering to this group or it's, it's shaking up this group too much. And so you need to stop it. But that we can love and we can lead and we can serve and we can share the story of God just simply through our lives that unfolds the light in the presence of the Spirit so that others will say, Man, that's different. That's different than what the media says about Christianity. That's different than, than what, what the world says about Christianity. That's different than everything I've heard about Christianity. And that's weird because I grew up in the church. I don't understand this. What well, you're saying something a little bit different. What is that about? but then you also look different. You behave different. I want to be, I'm attracted to that. And so slowly, little by little, your friends and your neighbors get attracted to what is going on in your life. That attraction is not you. Sorry. It's the presence of God in you. Stephen's face glowing like that of an angel is the same presence that when you have a relationship with Jesus that you have in you. Your friends and your neighbors are attracted to that presence. When we gather as a church, that presence is amplified. People are, are drawn to the presence of God. I remember a few years back, we did an outpouring here in this room and we had the doors open and the music was, was wonderfully loud and it was trans. And we had this couple that was walking by and heard the music and they just wandered in. And they sat in the back row and they experienced the whole night. This beautiful Indian couple, they were there and they're like, we've never experienced a church like this before. When the church gathered on that night, through singing and making, the King James Version says of the Psalms, making a loud noise, that that movement, that, that, that sound moved out of our walls and drew this couple in from our neighborhood to experience the presence of God through the gathering of his church. People are drawn to that. They're attracted to what God is doing and who he is in you. Church, we just get to be willing servants as Stephen is. That we, we can dive into the word of God and know it so that we can share it with others, just like Stephen has. And yeah, Stephen goes after him. <laughs> He's saying like, yeah, you guys are wrong. There's, there's certain things that you're missing along the way. And he points out to them that, that you, are, you, you haven't been pierced in your souls yet to understand the power of the work of God. And he does come to defense for the gospel. But yet he still seems to do it in love. In grace and in hope for what the gospel can do in their lives. And in this moment, the persecution of the church began because of a faithful servant of God who lived on task and mission.
So I wonder for us, we have to ask ourselves the same questions. Are we resisting the Holy Spirit's work in our lives for some reason? I really believe that the the Spirit of God wants to work in us and through us in powerful ways, but are we resisting that somehow? Have we put up our blockades as like, I'm just nervous, or I don't think I have the words. I'm not a pastor, I can't pray like that. I'm not a pastor, I can't preach like that. I'm not an evangelist, I can't share like that. Whatever it is that we put up, that that voice in the back of our heads that says, you're not good enough, you don't know enough. All of those things are lies. Those voices are not true. That's the devil, the enemy, trying to push you down and saying what you have to say has no value. Your story has no value. That is not true. Are we not allowing the spirit to do the work that he wants to continually do in our lives? That coming and receiving the the truth of Jesus is not just a ticket to heaven. It's the opportunity to go on a journey of a lifetime that leads us to heaven, to be continually transformed by the work of the spirit in our lives. It's called sanctification shaping us to become more like Jesus. And through that, a part of that process is sharing the story of Jesus. But what are we doing to stop that from happening? What's the little box we've thrown ourselves in? What are we missing along the way? And then here's the other thing. And you've heard me say this before, but sometimes we can look back over all of the story of God and we can say, man, God has been so faithful to his people from the very beginning. Starting in Genesis 1, man, he just loves his people. He loves all about his creation. That's really awesome. Look at all these stories. Let's sing some really cool songs about these stories. But there's something about when we get to the moment where either the persecution or the hurt or the struggle is so much in front of our faces that all of the faithfulness of God for some reason just seems to be lost in us. And we can't, we stop believing that God's faithfulness that we've known from the very beginning all the way up to that moment stops for some reason and doesn't move forward that because God has been so faithful, he'll stop being faithful moving ahead. And the faithfulness of God is a part of his character because we know he's been faithful. We can believe that he will continue to be faithful. Amen. So think about it in your lives. Think about the one moment that you've absolutely, without a doubt, seen the faithfulness of God in your life. Just one moment. Think of it. That one moment is a promise to you. Not just a promise in that moment that he was faithful, but it's a promise in your life that he will always be faithful to you. That he will always be faithful to you. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a beautiful verse, but always taken out of context. But what is not out of context is God is faithful. And because he is faithful, he will always be faithful. And then that just brings us back to living in the box. If we believe and hold on to God, you are faithful. Your story is good. You will continue to be faithful, moving ahead in every way. And that's what Stephen is preaching today. And it's crazy because next week, it seems to not end well for Stephen. But I'm going to tell you, I really believe that even though Stephen's story might have been shortened, 
that God was faithful through his story. Because here we are 2,000 plus years later telling of it. That the faithfulness of God through Stephen continues on from generation to generation. And we get to be a part of that story. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And as we continue to worship and as we close out the service to remember the story of God from the very beginning is for you. It hasn't been perfect along the way and there's been lots of things that have gone wrong, but God continues to be faithful for you. And he also wants to be faithful through you. And so church, I wonder what we might be fearing in our lives that's holding us back from experiencing the story of God in our lives in a new way. What are we nervous about or anxious about that we can just come to the throne room and offer it before the, the, the footstool of God and say, God, I, I, I trust in your faithfulness. You are faithful here and I believe you will always be faithful in every step ahead. I know it's not gonna be easy and I get it because that's part of the story, but I trust. I trust, I come open-handed. I come releasing everything to you for your good and for your glory. And Lord, I wanna be part of the story. Whether it's in the smallest way, whether it's just one conversation and that's what you use me for in my life. Or there maybe you're the next Billy Graham. However God wants to use you, his power will do great things through you. So church, what do we need potentially to get out of the way? And where do we need to continue to believe in the faithfulness of God? To be able to stand in the moments of persecution or doubt or fear and say, let me tell you of all my God has done. And that's what draws me to worship him every day. So will you stand and let's sing together the glory and the praises of our God.